Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and um, I'm very excited today to have Kristen Grogan on the podcast. Um, and Kristen has come on to talk about the, the, the great poet Lorene Niedeker um, and a poem of hers, which I think might be the the shortest poem we've had on the podcast so far. I'd have to, you know, like go back and check um, to to know that for sure. But I, I have a I have a good hunch it is the the, the poem that that Kristen um, suggested we talk about, and I was so so pleased when I heard her suggestion is a poem called Poet's Work. Um, so as ever, we'll make we'll make that poem available to you via a link. In the episode notes, you'll be able to um, click on that and look at the text of the poem as we um, as we discuss it. And I recommend that you do. It, it sort of visually has a kind of interesting appearance on the page or on your screen, um, and might be useful for you to be able to see that as we talk. Um, let me tell you more about Kristen though before we get going. So she is um, an assistant professor of English at Rutgers University. And before that was a junior research fellow at St. Catherine's College, um, Cambridge. Um, and before that, got her DPhil at Oxford University. That um, at Rutgers, um, Kristen works on poetry, poetics, modernism, American literature. Um, she has interests in Marxism, in gender and sexuality, queer studies. Um, and she's working on a book, which she tells me very excitingly is near completion. Um, that book's title <laughs> is, uh, Kristen just made a little cheering um, uh, gesture on, on, on the screen, which is great. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm cheering too. The, the title of that book is Stitch, Unstitch, Modernist Poetry and the Idea of Work. Um, and you'll see, or maybe you'll already have noticed just by virtue of the title of the book and the title of today's poem, Poet's Work, that this poem fits squarely into um, the argument that, that Kristen is making in that, in that book, which is, um, is going to be an important one um, for all kinds of readers. Um, you can find Kristen's essays in journals like American Literature, Critical Quarterly, um, Post 45, which um, I'm going to say a word more about in a moment, um, a journal called Lit, Literature, Interpretation, Theory. Um, so, so on that Post 45, oh, oh and, in, in, and in lots of um, in, in, um, edited collections of essays and so on. So she's, um, she's already published a, a, just a tremendous amount of, of really important stuff. Um, in Post 45, uh, with David Hobbs, she edited a cluster on the poet Bernadette Mare. Um, and, um, and I recommend that cluster to you for people who are interested in, in Bernadette Mare. It's, it's just um, hugely um, generative and exciting work that she's collected and um, put together um, for us there. Um, the cluster of essays includes an essay by Kristen herself, which is about Gosh, lots of things. I mean, one thing to say about the essay is that it, um, you know, those of you who've gotten to know me a little bit will, will maybe understand how I would be um, drawn to um, the, the method and the style of the piece, which mixes and integrates a kind of close and um, scholarly attention to Mare's poetry 
um, and to um, the traditions of criticism and theory that are relevant to Kristen's interest in Maris poetry with a kind of um, autobiographical writing on Kristen's own part, a kind of self-reflection on the ways um, in which the the poems that she's attending to have helped her understand aspects of her own life and what it's like to be a person in the world, uh, a person in the world right now. Um, that 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 essay, uh, apart from its method, you know what it's a uh, what I can say about it is that what it's about is about um, keeping a garden, um, and it's you know also about the way that um, certain kinds of poems are are like keeping a garden or are interested in the same kinds of preoccupations and problems, the same kinds of um, challenges, but also um, uh, moments of beauty that that gardens can produce. Um, here's a line f- um, of Kristen's from that essay um, that that struck me it's short. Um, so so let me let me read it to you quote, raising plants, is looking into a future that isn't yours. Um, end quote. That's great. <laughs> that, that, that's such a that's such a um, a lovely and um, and um, illuminating line for me. Um, it it immediately um, raised for me when I read it all kinds of um, preliminary thoughts about um, what that what that thought might have to do well with other kinds of work that we do now in the present whose fruits, whether metaphorical or literal, we, we might not live to see um, with things like raising children, for instance, but also with, um, um, with, with writing. Um, about, about Mare's writing, later in the essay, Kristen writes this, her poems insist on a right to expansive reproductive possibilities that are not subject to capitalism's constraints. Um, end quote. And it, and it, and it's on those terms that, that Kristen sees fit, um, to teach us about Bernadette Mayer, um, and, um, and a book of hers, a, a recent book of, um, a, a, a relatively recent book of hers. Um, and, um, and I, I recommend, um, I recommend that article to you. I recommend the whole cluster to you. Um, I'm sure that Kristen Grogan is a poetry critic, um, whom we're all going to want to be keeping um, our eye on and reading in the years to come. Um, so with that, I want to thank you, Kristen, for um, agreeing to appear on the podcast. And I want to ask you how you're doing today. I'm very well, Kamran. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, it's it's my pleasure to have you. I, I said that um, Niedeker is, um, th- or this poem is, is maybe the shortest one we've had on the podcast. Um, it also occurs to me, I wonder if this is true, that that this is, geographically speaking, the closest a guest has ever been to, to me as we've recorded. <laughs> Kristen is is um, sitting in West Philadelphia. I'm just outside of, of Philadelphia. We're probably a couple miles away, but communicating through the magic of the internet. Um, and today the air is bad outside. Yeah, so if there are scratchy throats or <laughs> if you can hear the ambient particulate matter through the recording. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The air is bad, the news is worse, but we've got we've got poetry to talk about. Poetry um, is better. That's right. Um Kristen, um would you mind saying just a word or two about um 
what went into your thinking as um, after I invited you onto the the podcast, how you arrived at um, well first maybe Nidaker and then this poem, or you tell the story as you as you see fit about choosing a poem for this occasion. Yeah. Um, well, I've been thinking with Nidaker and this poem for quite a long time. Um, she is one of the, she's in fact the last chapter in my book, uh, but this poem is the, opens the whole thing. So the first paragraph of my book, the first few paragraphs is a kind of reading of this, which leads into some of the, the knots um, that my book tries to untangle uh, over the course of, of its many pages about the relationship between poetry and labor, the deep ambivalence, the kind of enmeshment of um, of poets in ordinary kinds of work, um, and also efforts to distinguish themselves from that, which we can talk about more in this poem. Um, but how I arrived at Nidaka herself. So when I was an undergraduate and a master's student, I was the kind of student who was really into the most difficult, longest, long poems I could find. <laughs> and I wanted to read, I, I think my undergraduate dissertation was on the late cantos. Totally oh, yeah. unforgivable, um, that kind of 22-year-old. Right, so, for, so for of, people who don't know, that's Ezra Pound, right? Okay, and, yeah, yeah, it's just Ezra some Pound. of the most difficult poetry that, I mean, I don't know how we measure these things, but I think by most people would agree that's that is difficult stuff, right? Yeah, there's, a friend of mine has a theory that, you know, the kids who work on the like really difficult avant-garde thing, it's because it's the, you know, the shiniest red apple they can possibly present to the teacher. There's a sort right. of like desire for achievement there. Um, but one of my, I can't remember who, was one of my professors, um, I think was reading the Nidica Collected and suggested that I look at her because she is so, you know, she's entwined with a kind of poundy and imagist thing we can mm -hmm. see a lot of imagism in this poem a lot more of the early 20th century modernism obviously she's writing later um but I you know honestly I, I struggled with her for a while because I was in this sort of big long masculine modernist moment um and I didn't know how to read her yet I didn't know what to do with verse that was aphoristic and gnomic and yeah. small yeah, it's funny and, in a way. It's yeah. like you're saying that it's it's like the inverse of a story that a person might tell. Like, oh, you know, you might imagine a person who says, like, you know, I, I, I first fell in love with poetry that was accessible and you know welcoming and so on, and then I got to this hard stuff and I didn't know what to do with it. But in a way, you're telling the inverse story from that. Yeah, yeah, totally. It was like. I don't know, maybe other people were also 16 and 17 and had lines of the wasteland like scrawled on their bedroom wall. It was very that. And I think there is, yeah. to me, there's something almost unreadable about a lot of those long poems now for me because I associate them so much with this early period of my development. Um, but Nidica to me has proved to be somebody, because of the aphoristic, gnomic, ultra-condensed quality of her work, she has had a lot more staying power for me. She sort of lodged herself, I don't know, somewhere in the rib cage. Um, and her verse kind of prods at me because there's so much contained within very small spaces. That sounds both um, intimate and sort of uncomfortable. I'm imagining her sort of poking at you in your ribcage. Yeah, cage. and I think yeah. she is uncomfortable. I think as yeah. a figure she's uncomfortable. I think as an individual, some of the criticism we read has, has to me, yeah. emerges from a kind of discomfort, which is often the condition of writing about. So I should say that Nidica was... Um, 
Do you mind if I go into like a little biography? Kind it, it was of? it was going to be my next question okay, for you, great. actually. So you've anticipated it. Please, please go ahead. Cool. Um, so I, I'll just give you a tiny bit of critical history and then more good. kind of biographical history. Good, good. The two are related. Yeah. Uh, so I think that Nidika right now is having her day in the sun. I think she's being read more. Um, I think there's a post-45 cluster coming out on her as well. More critics are reading her. She seems to be like she's... Um, you know, really having her time a part of that, I think, especially is that her, many of her concerns and her later poems are so, you know, they're, they're intensely environmental poems. They come out of the late 60s. They have this kind of ethos of preservation that I think speaks to a lot of people today. Um, but really, this is a, this is a recent critical recovery. And for decades and decades, she wasn't particularly read. And part of that was because she didn't publish very much in her lifetime. Um, so William Carlos Williams called her the Emily Dickinson of our time. (laughs) And she was very, Nidika was very fond of quoting this, uh, you know, would tell people, well, William Carlos Williams, I mean, if someone called me the Emily Dickinson of my time, I'd be delighted. I'd probably have to spend more time at home, but, and, you know, more time writing poetry, but yeah, yeah. A lot of things would have to be true. (laughs) A lot of things. Yeah. But but, but it's it's not just someone calling you that it's William Carlos Williams calling you that. Totally. Yeah. Right. And I think, you know, as we read through, you know, if you spend, if you dear listener, uh, hooked on Dick, on Nidaker after this poem and read more poetry by her, I think you could see some um, some points of comparison and resonance with Williams for sure. Um, but Nidaker, so she was born in I think 1903 in Blackhawk Island, just outside of the tiny town of Fort Atkinson, Wisconsin, where I have never been, but one day I shall. Uh, so very, very small town on this, uh, actually on an island. It's very flood prone. She writes throughout her life constantly of, you know, the floods coming in. She talks about her life by water, living in these marshes. Um, and she has a pretty middle-class childhood, uh, that as she gets older is marked by more poverty and insecurity and insecure employment. And one thing that I think is really I'm just trying to do the math. So, so as she gets older, does that mean she's sort of aging as a as a young adult into the depression? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and in fact, in the depression, she I think she starts her first job in 1929, maybe mm-hmm. earlier. She'd been caring for her mother mm-hmm. who was ill before that. She works as an assistant librarian, and she loses her job because of the depression. Um, that ends her first marriage. It has all sorts of repercussions in her personal life. Um, mm-hmm. But later, the following decade, she works for the WPA, the Works Progress Administration, um, as a researcher and writer for, uh, they have this American Guides book series where every state gets a guide, right. um, guidebook. And she writes for the Wisconsin one. So she moves to Madison and, you know, she's part of this uh, generation of writers and artists who are kept afloat by the New Deal. Um, and what researching that gives her is more language for the folk traditions, the kind of distinctive folk lifestyles of her region in Wisconsin. Um, and she, mm. her first book uh, is called New Goose. It's not published till after the Depression. It's 1946. But it's really a volume of, that emerges out of the Depression, emerges out of rural poverty and dispossession um, and fear and the lack of knowledge, the kind of climate of um, obfuscation um, as well to which working people were subject. Right. But one thing that so the critics have sort of found difficult to work through with Niedecker is that she lives her whole life predominantly. She 
spends a bit of time in Milwaukee later in life, but she's in this very small town in Wisconsin. But all of her closest friends, especially Louis Sikovsky, are in the metropolitan avant-garde. So they're in New right. York. And Nidika right. really has this uh, epistolary life. This is where, again, where the Emily Dickinson comparison is not just a formal one, it's a biographical one, where, you know, every week for, you know, the span of her life, she writes to Zukovsky and they trade letters and they um, do all sorts of work for each other. Right. How is it that, um, I mean, uh, uh, sorry, I realize as I'm about to ask this question that it, it might sound like, like what, um, naive or something, but, um, or, or, or that I'm making an improper kind of assumption, but I'm just imagining this, this, um, youngish woman living in Wisconsin. How is it that she's finding out about Zukovsky? Like what, what are, what are the, um, do we, do you have a sense, Kristen, of where it is that she's discovering this kind of, you know, we might think sort of avant-garde or, mm. re- you know, on, on, on the sort of largest scale, relatively obscure kind of um, um, poetic um, production. Like, how's it getting to her? So um, she reads Poetry Magazine and she reads the objectivist issue and she writes to Zukovsky. Turns out you can make lifelong friends by just cold calling poets you like. <laughs> um yeah, so she Note has to listeners. Answer, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Send fan so, mail. Yeah, totally. Maybe right. we will correspond over decades. Um, she has access, you know, she has a public, she has a library in Fort Atkinson. And throughout, one of the interesting things in her letters throughout is correspond is is tracking like what she has access to and what she's desperately trying to find. Yeah. Um, so she she by this point she's read like She's read Pound, she's read Wolf, she's, you know, she's read a lot of the modernists. But, um, yeah, really, she just cold calls Zukovsky after the objectivist issue. And she goes to New York. Um, they have an affair, but, you know, they remain friends afterwards. Um, right. And it's a, it's a very long, very generative friendship. It kind of disintegrates towards the end of their lives. They're going mm-hmm. in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Okay, fascinating. So, um that's a really helpful little biographical sketch you've given us. And also I'm, I'm really grateful for the, um, for the, the overview you've given of her kind of reemergence um, vis-a-vis, you know, the sort of critical attention she's, she's been receiving of late um, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I know that there's this, this beautiful new edition of her poems um, from Berkeley um, from the university of California press um, that, um, I want to get this right, that Jenny Penberthy um, yeah. edited. Um, and um, and I know from the notes, the the excellent and helpful notes that, that Penberthy has provided in that edition, that the poem you've chosen for us, Poet's Work, its manuscript is dated. That's helpful. But more more po- poets, you should be dating your manuscripts to help, to help the Accurately scholars of the future. Well. That's right. <laughs> I guess you could lie to us and we'd never know, yeah. right? or, or we probably would never find out. Um, it's dated June 8th, 1962. Um, so um, y- you said, I think, that her first book was published in 45. Is, is that the six? Okay. Yeah. F- f- okay. Well, we. Yeah, we, it's not the, the the fine detail of that that I cared so much about. It's just to say that this book, I mean, this poem is written a couple decades after that, right? And yeah. um, and and do you is there something we should know about the kind of um, evolution of her career to that 
point or is there some distinction you would draw between sort of early Nidaker and, you know, later Nidaker um, that is worth thinking about before we get into the poem itself? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, a couple of things I want to say there. One is that in her early career, so her very early career, she's really doing this kind of surrealist thing. Um, I don't find those poems super interesting. Other people do. They're, they're you know, they're a very 30s kind of, right. you know, early surrealist mode. In the new ghost, the new goose poems, what they're really, uh, they're working with is the nursery rhyme. And we see the nursery rhyme is important for her throughout her career, but in the 50s especially, Nidika's, uh, what she turns to more explicitly is haiku. Um, so she her verse becomes more condensed, which we'll see is a key word for yes. this. It becomes sort of littler and littler. Later in her career, we see another expanding out where she writes long poems, but made of like very short, very sharp lines, usually with the tasset. So as a reader, I would, I would keep in mind the kind of haiku form as we're reading this. Um, right. It's a great letter. The other kind of contextual thing that I want to say about this poem, this is really important in my book and my reading of Nidika, is that in the 1960s, the early 60s, when she's writing this, she's working as a cleaner at the Fort Atkinson Hospital. So her okay. eyesight is kind of gone. She's, um, you know, she's older, she's in poor health, and she's working a menial job. Right. Um, and there's a lot that we can say about that maybe a little bit later about kind of invisibility, condensing, making things smaller that I think speaks to sure. this. Um, but in the margins of time when she's not cleaning hospitals, cleaning hospital kitchens, she is sort of writing letters to Zukowski complaining that she can't find the right edition of Basho at the library. Oh, um, so, so it's not just that it looks like haiku, but you, we've got good evidence here that she's really interested and in thinking absolutely. about Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And she develops a close friendship with a writer called Sid Corman, who's living in Kyoto. Right. So uh, these are the, the influences there, I would say. Oh, that's, that's, that's great. That's wonderful. Um, all, all right. So, um, well, now I, I think we've, we've, we've wet our listeners' appetites. It's time. It's time to hear the poem. Um, and, um, and I, and I'm, and I want to ask you, Kristen, to, to read it to us. Sure thing. Um, okay. Poet's work. Grandfather advised me learn a trade. I learned to sit at desk and condense no layoff from this condensery. Great. So a very extensive poem. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I guess in a way you could say, um, you know, I, I was thinking back to that, um, to the Williams line about uh, the Dickinson of our time or something, you know, surely part of, I mean, I, I feel as though in the 20th century, any time a, a, a man, a male poet was having to say something about a female poet whom he had admired in the American context, certainly Dickinson's name would come up. Right. But, but so there's that, the, the kind of dull obviousness of that. But there's also, I mean, something about the short lines. Um, the, 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 you know, this is a nine line long poem and it's organized into three tercets. Um, that's not a Dickinsonian, a recognizably Dickinsonian form, but if you squint sort of, there's something, to, you know, I, there's something yeah. to that comparison. It feels, yeah? there's a kind of um, family resemblance yeah. Or something here. Yeah. 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 Okay. So um the first line of the poem, I mean, was, I, I was gonna say, well, we should start at the beginning. I guess the beginning is really the title of the poem, but poet's um, work. 
yeah, poets work, but in, in a way that I, I, I take it that sort of one kind of way to approach reading this poem in the interpretive sense of making sense of the poem is, is going to be to think about what that title might mean or the various kinds of things that title might mean. So in a way I feel as though, unless you feel differently, in which case I'm happy to be led by you, Kristen, I almost want to kind of defer, sort of let the title hang in the background of Mm. the whole conversation, keep referring back to it rather than trying to kind of unpack the title all on its own and then look at the poem. Yeah. Um, I think in the way of the Ars Poetica, the sort of art of poetry poem, the title can feel both like a summation and also like we can't really understand it until we get the theory of poetry, which comes throughout the poem. So I do like the idea of letting it hang and referring back to it. I don't think we can um, dig into it in quite the same way without going through what the poem is saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, So, so we're on something like the same page. That's, that's good. I, and I, and I think the Ars Poetica idea is a really instructive model to have in mind. It's just this, you know, for listeners who aren't familiar with it, this tradition of poems that, um, are sort of explicitly about the art of poetry where a, a poet might sort of say what goes into that art for them. Um, and, um, okay. Um, the first line of the poem is just one word, grandfather. Grandfather. And I wonder what you make of that as a kind of a grounding or, um, you know, what, what, what do you think about when you see that word and, and are thinking about Nidaker and where she is and what she's thinking about? Um, yeah. Maybe comparing it to like what other, what that word might mean as the first word of a poem for other kinds of poets or poets who are contemporary to her or not. You know, I guess I just, I'm so interested in that moment. I think maybe it's the way that you read it where you were like grandfather. But I sort of, <laughs> I mean, I, I attach obviously a kind of like patriarchal gravitas to the first right. word, right? Yeah. It's, it's also, to me, it's better than father. Yeah. You know, it's sort of, it, 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 there's an immediate lineage in grandfather. Right. Um, and. Uh, That's interesting. Yeah. It feels like it, to me, I read that and I think, okay, so this is either going to be about like, maybe I'm revealing too much about my sense of, of, of lineage and, uh, and inheritance, <laughs> but it's either going to be about challenging the kind like right. something that is received or it's going to be about like failure. Yeah. Um, to live up to but I think the first word it gives me that um the sense that she is going to position herself in relation to the grandfather it's funny I was thinking I I, I swear I, I didn't like plant this and in, in my, my question wasn't intended to produce the the response that I'm about to give but it just occurred to me so I'm going to say it you know the Marianne Moore Moore poem silence that begins father always said mm-hmm. um it, 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 which I mean, this is an an episode about that poem, so we don't we surely don't need to talk about it. But I, I, my way of reading that poem is that it's sort of ironizing the authority of the father figure who has this kind of portentous lesson to give. Um, totally, totally. Yeah. Um, and I and think, so that's yeah. one thing that might be happening with a line with a poem that begins grandfather. But yeah, go on. Yeah, I agree. And there's a kind of I think the sort of grandeur of grandfather. Father would also work, but uh, although not as as metrically lovely, um, heightens that ironizing. 
I also have a more specific sense of who the grandfather is. Well, I was going to ask that too, actually. Yeah. Does it matter, you know, m- might we learn something by knowing anything about who the grandfather is? Does that matter? Well, like I in mean, a poem by Robert Lowell, it would matter, right? Yeah, like it, totally. Right. So Nidika, you know, in terms of lineage, she writes a lot about her mother, partly because her mother was ill. She spent a lot of time caring for her mother. She has sort of beautiful poems that have a sort of grandfatherly energy behind them about Mm -hmm. her mother, which are kind of working through Whitman and Lincoln and all sorts of ways. But grandfathers, I'm not sure. Maybe I, I would have to read through it. I don't know. So so the, my theory of who the grandfather is kind of leads us to a later word. And I don't know if I want to skip ahead or like oh. move through it progressively. Well, I think the poem is so short that yeah. we can skip ahead and skip back and kind of okay. move around. So if you want to, yeah. what What's the word? So the key word for this poem is, well, two words, condense and condensory. Right. And it comes, so there are two meanings, two valences of this poem, um, of this word. One is extremely local. And one is a kind of signature of the global um, cosmopolitan avant-garde. Good. So which one do you want me to start with first? <laughs> let's, big or small? <laughs> let's, I, I, well, uh, I mean, feel free to overrule me. But since you asked, I guess yeah. I would say let's start local. Let's go local. Cool. I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm happy with that. Okay. So uh, Nidika is from Wisconsin. And Wisconsin is the center of the country's dairy industry, which is a fact I sort of um, abstractly knew because I read Nedeker and I sort of thought about this. I read the entirety of the Wisconsin, A Guide to the Badger State in the Oxford University Library. I think the yeah. only person who's ever done that. That's hilarious. Um, but then I moved to America and I would like be sifting through the kind of um, lurid orange cheeses available yeah. in your standard American supermarket and was like, oh yeah, no, this is, yes, Wisconsin. I see something is clarified uh-huh. for me. Anyway. <laughs> Wisconsin, um, where Nidika was from, is is dairy capital. She spends a lot of her life working as a stenographer and a proofread of her dairy journal. And a condensary is where condensed milk is made. In order to make condensed milk, you evaporate um, a significant amount of water from Mm. milk. And what you're left with is something delicious Uh and much more concentrated and powerful. Right. So that's the that's the local one that you know she is sort of working with, or that mm-hmm. has a local valence that I don't know if you said condensary to to everybody outside of that would necessarily um, instantly. Yeah. Know, well, card on. cards on the table. No, definitely in preparation okay. for this poem, I looked it up because I was like, Great. that sounds like a factory of some kind, but what kind yeah. is it? You know, and I said, ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? Yeah. Yes. So I didn't know it. You know, yeah, good. Um, but but Nidaker so, certainly did, and it was a word that she would have used and been familiar with, and local readers might, you know, would would just as well have known that word. Yeah, yeah and there's really, a, I think, you know, that this is maybe a question for later, but, you know, who is her readership? Who is reading right. her? She's very secretive about the fact that she's a poet. She talks at length about this, like, kind of sexy, I mean, she, she wouldn't say sexy, but mm-hmm. I think it's kind of sexy secret mm-hmm. that she writes poems and no one around her knows. So she holds it quite close to her. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so the second meaning of condensary is like a deep cut for uh, into sort of a poundian history of poetics. So in his ABC yeah. of reading, um, 
with book by Ezra Don't. Pound. A book yeah. by Ezra Pound. Yeah. I was going to say the title kind of does what it says on the tin, I guess, but Pound never yeah. really does what he says on the tin. In his ABC of reading, Pound begins one of his chapters by quoting, by sort of describing this vignette in which another poet named Basil Bunting right. um, is looking through uh, old uh, dictionaries, a German-Italian dictionary, and he finds the German verb Dichten, which is the verbal version of Dichtung, poem, mm-hmm. equals condensare, the Italian uh, verb to condense. And Pound, you know, treats this as this kind of ancient proof, old proof that um, poetry is the most, you know, concentrated form of language of expression. Right. But it is also this signature moment where, you know, we find an American poet living in Europe drawing on another poet's like German to Italian definition of poetry. Mm. It's really far from the local language of the condensory. Right, right. Or or Pound's own Idaho roots or whatever. Yeah, Idaho yeah. and then yeah. Philadelphia. Yeah, right. Yes, yeah. right, yeah. Um, uh, okay, sorry, go on. Yeah. Or, or, so yeah. one of the motivating tensions. Okay, so this goes back to my my theory of the grandfather. To me, the the person like lurking behind right. the Aris in the first line is Pound. It's Ezra Pound. I see. And this is also 1962. He's like in the well. Is he out by then? I, I forget. Um. You, sorry, this is something I know. Yes, he's out. Yeah. He's he, um. So so what um Kristen is referring to. This is something I've written about. So so I'm happy to step in here. But um, you know, Pound, among other things. Um, was a fascist. Um, th- those politics emerged in in their sort of full flowering during the Second World War, when Pound made um, pro Mussolini, um, pro um, Axis radio broadcasts, um, anti-Semitic, sort of crazy sounding um, radio broadcasts. Um, at the end of the Second World War, Pound was um, arrested by the American. Um, army, um, and um, and as a kind of legal maneuver, um, meant to evade what might have been a death sentence um, for Pound. His lawyers argued that he was insane. Um, they they argued not that he was insane at the time of the radio broadcast, though that was sort of implied in a way. Mm. They argued that he was made insane by his detention following his arrest and he was therefore unable to understand the charges being made against him or to participate in his defense. And a jury agreed. I think his lawyers thought that he would be sent to rather than to a prison or to be executed, he would be sent to a hospital and quickly released once the war fever died down in the post-war period. But that turned into a long um, stay 13 years that yeah. Pound did at St. Elizabeth's Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Washington, D.C., where he w- was, in a sense, imprisoned in a in a, um, a mental hospital and where he received visitors and people wrote about their visits to Pound, visits from poets and visits from white supremacists and mm, all kinds of figures. And- yeah. So he was there from 45 to 58. So by now, yeah, he's just been released and he's gone back to Italy, I guess. To yeah, Rapallo. to continue yeah. doing some unrepentant fascism. Yeah, yeah. so sorry for that little um, digression, but I think it's that's such an interesting idea. I hadn't thought of it. It makes perfect sense. And I want you to say more now about what it would mean to think of grandfather here as pound. Yeah, um, 
So, who looks sort of grandfatherly by this and time he's too. He's also by going the way. by yeah. Grandpa. He yeah. he has that kind of like folksy yeah. nickname that right. his various like poet slash fascist visitors at Saint, Eliz- at Saint Elizabeth's bring to him. You know, he that's his nickname at this time. So he's sort of adopting this. Um, there's a kind of uh, both authority and also like the sort of like denuded of his crazy and power image of like the poet in his slippers shuffling around the mental asylum that is pound as grandpa. Um, So it's both, but it's both authoritative and kind of, um, you know, I don't know. I think of someone like Grandpa Simpson and the, you know, like, in, sorry to make a pop culture reference, but no, I'm thinking of the Simpsons, right. right. The sort of hapless like- kind of s- senile figure who nevertheless has this kind of deep historical knowledge, which sometimes is really important and can, sort of carries a kind of authority because of that. Yeah, yeah, and I would say as well that Nidica doesn't really miss any chance to make fun of Pound. So she has a great poem written a couple of years after this um, called it's called Santayana's, and it's a letter from she adopts a letter from George Santayana, the philosopher, to Daniel Corey. Pound, um, when he was in Italy, kept like haranguing Santayana, like, please hang out with me, read my books, come on. Right. And Santayana writes this letter saying, calling, um, saying to to tell Pound that, like, I'm so sorry, I can't read poetry, I can't read, um, yeah. and tells uh, Corey that he only wishes to see people who are normal and beautiful, not abortions or eruptions like Ezra Pound. And Nidica turns us into, like, a little, tiny little lyric that's a sort of joke on poetic authority. Right. But, like, you know, behind that is this, um, this, like, crazy image of Pound, like, banging on George Santayana's theater yeah uh, that's, Italian great. that's great that's great so so um so um but but maybe say more Kristen, about i mean you you gave us that wonderful sort of via basil bunting and that whole bit about what um um condensari and dictung but maybe tell us more about from a kind of poetics point of view or poetic history point of view like what condensation w- why that would have been a virtue or what that would have meant Mm. or like what kind of, you know, sort of what view of poetry is implied by seizing upon that. uh, I don't know if etymology is quite the right word, but whatever, you know what I mean? That sort of genealogy or something of, of, of poetry. So, so this, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm wanting to ask you to talk about, this sounds more like early pound, like imagism or something, but say say more about that. I go back to imagism. I wasn't sure if you had something earlier. To Not really. I mean, I, I didn't really have a particular thing in mind. I'm just interested yeah. in hearing you talk about it. So imagism, um, for readers who might not have encountered, listeners who might not have encountered that word yet, is a sort of very early version of poetic modernism that comes out basically of London in the 1910s, um, articulated by Pound, by T. Hume, early practitioners at HD and William Carlos Williams, which advocates for a tremendous clarity and um, precision uh, in writing, which is driven by the image, which Pound calls, you know, somewhat confusingly, um, an emotional and intellectual complex. In complex. An instant, yeah. yeah, in an instant of time, which is, is kind of a, a tough definition to get your head around. Images, poems tend to be, for one thing, small. Right. They tend to they tend to be little. They tend to be driven by a um, a sort of 
a relation to visuality that is also playing with metaphor. Um, and they tend to isolate a single um, image. And I mean image here, not in the kind of complex sense, but in the in the sense mm. of like a single thing, you right. know, the apparition of these faces, um, right. the sort of single um, apparition and to dive into that. So I think Nidaker is really playing with that history. You know, right. one of the complicated things about that, that's early pound. Images. And so that, and, and, and so of the, course, the, Pound the, goes the, on to write 800 pages of the cantos. You know, he yeah, goes yeah. like, if we want to talk about poetry as as condensation, condensory, one thing that I think this poem suggests is doing it, actually doing it, not saying that that's a definition of poetry and then writing, you know, yeah, 800 yeah. pages of crazy or of yeah. length. But it's this sort of it's also taking seriously the lessons of early modernism and I think doing them better than someone like Pound himself did. That's lovely. That's lovely. So in passing, Kristen referred to this famous um, early poem by Pound called In a Station of the Metro, um, which is so short I can quote it for you here. The apparition of these faces in the crowd, petals on a wet black bough. Um, two lines plus a title, you know, two lines joined either by a semicolon or a colon. It's um, different versions differ, right? But um, the story that Pound tells about that poem in describing the, the ideas of imagism is itself instructive, right? Where he says that he, you know, was on the Paris Metro. He had this vision. Mm. And he wrote like a 37 line long poem yeah. or something. And a then work he kept of making... second rate intensity. I right, something like that, he says. That's great. Right. Yeah. And then yeah. he made it shorter and shorter and yeah. shorter. And what he was left Shipping. with. Right. Or we can think, you know, to, to go back to this lovely image you gave us or this sort of local kind of actual instance that you give us. It's as though that poem went into the condensary, right? Yeah. And came out concentrated and sweet or something. Um, but but just to for people who aren't as familiar with the matter of literary history that that that's I think this really lovely kind of um, suggestion you just offered I um, I I, I want to um, kind of elaborate just slightly for the benefit of of listeners who don't know these dates um, inside and out is is you know the idea is that moment in modernist history is from the early twentieth century from the teens let's say. Um, Remember, right, Niedecker's writing in the 60s here. By then, those modernists are still alive, most of them, right? They're in their old age, Eliot and Pound and Williams and so on. Um, But Pound certainly has like long since given up that kind of condensed form and is is writing this sort of sprawling epic poem, a poem including history, he says, the cantos that Kristen says, you know, is like a first object of um, kind of like cutting your teeth against as a young scholar. Um, so, Which so I do it, not recommend, by the way, <laughs> well, just I don't know. to be clear. It gave us the great Kristen Grogan. I mean, it's yeah. fine. Um, so, but so, so in, in a way, like the, the attitude of this poem is sort of like taking a lesson from an ancestor but turning it back on them and saying like, I'm doing, I'm doing what you said better than you did or more faithfully than you did or really doing it as you put it, um, really condensing. 
Yeah, I think I think that's I, I you know the one thing I want to pick up with that is the sort of tone because yeah, good. Um, there's a kind of bravura in the there's actually like kind of Poundian bravura or modernist bravura and sort of challenging the kind of lie quiet divas one of the lines in the cantos you're sort of taking people on on their own terms and I think you know Nidaka is not she's not like the heroic woman shouting from the mountain like I'm going to take on my literary forebears and, right. and do it better than them that's not her stance or her attitude and I think I think that like especially later in the poem you know it it becomes very flat there's a, a fall that I don't think is a sort of major fall I think it's a sort of step down um talk us through know. that that's great yeah, yeah. yeah so uh grandfather advised me learn a trade we now know that this sort of rather than a trade in the sense of something that will, you know, a specific set of skills that will carry her throughout her life, she trades that in for the, the work of poetry. I learned to sit at desk and condense. Um, it's a very uh, deflationary idea of what being a poet is. Mm. I sit at desk, not my desk, not a desk. There's something even right. tighter in that yeah. lack of an article there or a possessive and condensed. It's almost like she's squeezing it. Sorry, I'm making, I'm mm. like making gestures and Cameron told me to sit quite still so as not to make no, her good. fuzzy sounds. So no, in, no. Case, in case there's any fuzziness, it's me like squeezing in. Yeah, um, No layoff from this condensory. And really, you know, I think I kind of want to save that final stanza for a real discussion yeah. between between the two of us because Good. it's so ambivalent to me especially that no layoff but there is you know Nidica's images of writing poetry are always kind of minor images she talks about hmm. she she wrote over the course of her life she published very very little she wrote very slowly this collected works is phenomenal but there's a lot of white space you know it's a right. fairly in some ways quite sparse and her images for the work she does are sitting. It's like sitting on, um, she says in an earlier poem, she's talking about working at the Dairy Journal and she's surrounded by other women who also work and they have like kids and they have they go to church and they like go bowling or whatever they do. And Nidika goes home and writes poetry, which looks like doing nothing. She says, what would they say if they knew I sit for two months on three lines of poetry? Poetry is this like slow process of eking something out. Looks like not working, right? Exactly. Which, yeah. you know, what's interesting to me is somebody who writes about the relationship between poetry and labor, what what work that looks like not working instantly speaks to me is the condition of women's labor. You are working and it has, mm. you know, the great insight of feminist labor studies is that women's work has been not has not been seen as work or not been seen as legitimate work. Or right. Whatever. The the father goes out and works, the wife stays at home. Yeah. And the mo mother stays at home and, and doesn't work. Exactly. A, a kind of wrong-headed person, but most people might have said, you know, or might still say. And what you're saying is that, yeah, that there's a kind of invisibility to, to women's work. Totally, totally. And there, you know, that invisibility operates on many levels. It's like cultural, it's in the world of like the wage or the unwage. Is this, is this right. formalized as something that's paid or is it not? Right. It's also, you know, Niedeker at this time is working as a cleaner, which right. is a kind of invisible work. It goes back to the kind of cliche about housework that people only notice when it's not done. Right. 
if the work is performed, it removes things and it doesn't, it's a self-negating work. You don't see its traces. Right. Right. And presumably the hospital or wherever, I mean, I don't know, I'm just guessing here, but the hospital where she cleaned, you know, they, what would have defined her doing her job well to them that, that, that the hospital would have remained clean, but that they wouldn't have noticed her there either. Exactly. And there's a lot of, you know, because she cleans the kitchen as well, there are stories of having to like physically remove, you know, this is often the condition of cleaners who are from work late at night or early in the morning, you physically remove yourself from the space. Like you're invisible. No one sees you there. Right. Um, it's as though little f- fairies had done it well, totally. you know, or something. Yeah, right. Yeah, totally. It's the kind of Disney version where, like, the princess goes off to the ball and the, like, mice pick right. up the whatever. I don't know. Um, right. So what that immediately call- sort of brings up for me, Kristen, is a question about, you know, like, now I'm wanting to know about modernist theories of the kind of impersonality of the poet. Is I mean, is there a way in which, like, the poet's work is also to be withdrawn from the scene of labor? and invisible in some way. I mean, you were making a gendered argument, which I want you to get back to if that's what you want to talk about. And maybe these two things Um, come together, actually. I kind of want to hear you say a little bit more about impersonality, if that's okay. (laughs) Can I throw that back at you? Is that cheeky? Oh, it's not cheeky, but I but I feel badly if I I knocked you off the track that you were going on. Did you have more to say a, a moment ago about Probably, but we'll get to that. Okay, okay, okay. Well, I, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I too was noticing, for instance, um, I mean, it's, it's there, there is a first person pronoun in this poem, so it's not as though the, it's not as though the poem is entirely impersonal in that sense. I mean, uh-huh. just to zoom all the way out, I guess, uh, from a, the point of view of literary history, again, there is this kind of um, talk. It mostly comes through the figure of T.S. Eliot about sort of modernist impersonality, that the that the poem is the kind of evacuation or the evasion of the personal. Um, um, I was what I was going to say is I was noticing um, the thing that you commented on earlier. I learned to sit at desk, not at my desk. Right, a grandfather is not my grandfather. Right, um, it's not grandfather so and so. <laughs> it's no totally it's so there's something kind of impersonal about that um i'm also thinking about um now about your the the essay that i talked about in the intro that you wrote about mare and gardening you know so there's another kind of image of what poetic labor might look like yeah. tending to a garden or something where the idea you don't want to see the gardener in the garden right you want to see the garden Maybe you do. I don't know. It would be a depends it, on the gardener. I guess. <laughs> okay, yeah. fair enough. So my my brain went Lady Chatterley. <laughs> but, yeah, totally. <laughs> I see. So, um, so so and and maybe also there's this idea that um, you know the kind the the sort of the the fruits of the labor, as it were, in in the case of poetry, are meant to kind of um, become detached from the poet. Mm. him or herself so that the poem can live on in its kind of um you know um perpetual state apart from the um the the kind of here and now flesh and blood um um contingencies of the poet's actual life or something Um, yeah i think there really is something about preservation here if it's okay i'm going to read another i think it's okay because this one is even shorter it's six (laughs) lines a very short nidica poem um often and this is sort of 
in some ways similar to Dickinson, she doesn't title her poems. Um, so, you know, when I write about this poem, I refer to it by uh, its first line as its title. Okay, so for best work, you ought to put forth some effort to stand in north woods among birch. This poem has uh, so it's six lines. It has a really, again, we can feel this kind of haiku resonance. It has an, an even weirder typography in that the central two lines are like pushed right to the right. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, what she theorizes effort, your best work, right. is standing extremely still among mm-hmm. birch trees, you know, striated white trees. So there is this kind of self um self-removal impersonality um yeah it seems to me like it's operating in a very different sense to the modernist one partly because of this stage Nidikister energy moves increasingly towards a kind of soon after this she retires hooray and she and her she marries for the second time in her life and she and her husband spend a lot of time traveling around northern wisconsin and she gets obsessed with writing long environmental poems yeah. and so there's this sort of um I think this goes back to the essay I wrote about the garden and also what you were just saying about things living on beyond you, this um, sense that what it means to create something for the future is to impose yourself only minimally upon the world. Right. Right. You know, well, so the, 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 I mean, that sounds so right to me. And, and I, what I was thinking about when you read that, would you read it again, by the way? That, oh, yeah, that totally. short poem, Sorry, do you have it handy? Just... Sorry, if no. I can, I can, I can, no, no, you know, no, no, what no. is it? It's... Oh. Vamp while you, you know. Hang on, yeah, I, I just was at the page. Because you Give know what I was- Give me one second. Yeah, sure, take your time. What I was thinking of while you look is the famous, I don't know if to call it modernist, modern poem about birches, Frost poem Birches. <sighs> I love that poem. Which I love too. I love too. I love but it, so but much, it's just yeah. the opposite in a totally, way. Right? Totally. It's it's not about stand that poem is not about standing quietly and still in a in a what is it, a stand of birches or a grove of birches or whatever. It's about yeah. like literally riding and deforming them. A you know? swinger, yeah, exactly. Right. It's it's about working on them in a kind of pl- boyish, playful way so as to change them, you know, and leave yeah. them leave them altered in one's wake um, and also to change yourself right There's yeah a kind oh, of dialectical sure. metabolism of that is his like moment of becoming and yeah i mean so, so that's all a poem sorts which, of like, masculinity going on frost is a yeah sure yeah the the sort of um the kind of you know, <laughs> yeah, like the now flaccid birch or something but yeah. but frost is like you know, he says, when I see birches, you know, like, I like to think that a boy's been swinging on them. And then he, he sort of goes down that flight of fancy. And then he says, oh, I know that ice storms probably did it or something. Right. Yeah. Um, but there's this idea that that kind of interaction with the world is, is, is what, and that's a way of like climbing towards heaven, but returning to earth. Um, so read that, read the Nidaker again. You have it yeah. now? I do have it now. Um, okay. okay. For best work, you ought to put forth some effort to stand in north woods among birch. Maybe the and effort what is, interesting is like, to me. yeah, go on, go on. Yeah, effort, yeah. I think, you know, the sort of slant rhyme on forth and effort, I think is really yeah. nice. Um, also the uh, preposition among, you know, for, for Frost, and don't get me wrong, I really love that poem. Yeah. Um it's uh you know 
she trades out the acting upon something for the being for being amongst things. That's the That's kind great. of core of this. Um, yeah. Non-imposition, I think. Is maybe how the, I would maybe the effort it. that's required is the effort of restraint. Of, totally. You totally. know, not doing the thing that you feel drawn to do, which is to climb the oh, tree or something. I'm so glad you said that because the chap- the title of this chapter that I'm <laughs> in my book is Nidaka and the Work of Restraint. Oh, that's great. Um, okay. So I feel like we're on a wavelength. <laughs> I'm very pleased with Good, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. So, um, <clears throat> okay. So I learned to sit at desk and condense um, you know, I want, I want to say sort of t- t- two things about that and, and hear what, what you think. Um, so the, f- the first is that, you know, it, it would be one thing and, and it's not Niedecker's circumstance that this is a poet who's interested in the work of poetry and self-conscious about the way in which that work doesn't look like the work of other kinds of manual labor, especially, um, F- Niedecker is is herself, as you've described her to us, both engaged in the work of poetry and engaged in the kind of manual labor, the the sort of that world. I, um, sorry. And I think the other thing I was going to say is I learned to sit at desk. Then maybe it's because that what our, our, the discussion we just had of the frost poem and, and Niedecker's relation to the, I don't who knows if she was thinking about frost poem, but I think it's an instructive comparison nonetheless. Um, that that maybe in that middle stanza, I learned to sit at desk and condense is a what is a is a kind of um, description of a discipline or of a kind of um, that 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 where rest- yeah I mean I guess say more than um, Kristen if you would about what rest- what discipline or restraint you know, these kinds of, yeah. um, I mean, it is very difficult to sit at a desk. Yeah. I find at least maybe this is my own. Yeah. Um, I, I almost can't, I'm, I'm sort of, I can spend about 20 minutes in one place and then I have to like move my laptop to a different seat. So, right. um, uh, yeah. not, not that Nidika was in that particular circumstance, but you know, what she insists on in this and in the poem I just read for best work, you have to put forth some effort to stand in Northwoods. What she is insisting is difficult is not action, but is inaction or what looks like inaction. What right? looks and like I think inaction, that this, yeah. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, I'm curious about the, um, the extent to which poetry is then a kind of action, the sort of condensing is, um, you know, whether it is, what looks like an action or if it actually is, maybe we could talk about that a bit more. Yeah. Um, Go on. Or, yeah, yeah. But uh, I think it's a, it's a sort of reformulating what effort means yeah. that it isn't sort of shaping or changing things, but it is what it means to be totally still and removing, you know, I learned to sit at desk at condense. I think one, one thing is interesting there is the way that that, stanza that tacit is constructed there isn't an object after condense i learned to sit in desk yeah. and condense my poems and condense lines condense whatever and there is something that's life think, or experience yeah. or and this whatever. is also yeah. the only stanza that has the um well grandfather raised me but then we have the first person i learned to sit at desk and condense right. it feels like there's a kind of self dim- diminishing mm-hmm. like she herself is condensing 
Right. And if you really wanted to read those enjambments like out loud, it almost sounds more kind of effortful. I learned to sit at desk and condense, you know, I mean, it, I'm, I'm sort of overdoing it just to draw out the effect. I, you know, the other um, way back at the beginning of this conversation, when you said, oh, there are two sort of senses of condense or condensory, there's a local and there's the sort of um, avant-garde intellectual version of it. I I wasn't sure if for the second you were going to talk about Freud <laughs> and, you know, like, oh, you know, God, because there's this yeah. tradition in, in sort of psychoanalysis of thinking of condensation as a, as a kind of, um, I mean, I'm not going to describe this in any kind of expert way and please fill in if you think I'm getting it wrong or, or whatever, but this kind of, um, psychological phenomenon that humans can't help but perform in which, you know, in the typical example that's given is like a thing that happens in your, in a dream, let's say mm-hmm. is a condensed version of some kind of, um, um, you know, set of um, psychological kinds of um, attachments or events that are happening in you. So condensed in the sense, not just that like um, a long story is turned into a short one, but like, two things are merged into each other. You know, I had a dream yeah. about my mother, but my mother was my um, school teacher. And, and, and I, but then later I was married to her and, you know, like that kind of thing yeah. that might happen in a dream. Um, not my dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, Ooh, that's, that's the one we're going with. Cool. <laughs> um, so, so I don't know why, why might that be right? I mean, I guess sort of biographically, I want to know, like, would Nita Curve cared about Freud have been thinking, I mean, she's by 62. She could have been, I don't know, but yeah. just historically, but even apart from that, would it be interesting or does that, does that kind of condensation, have a role to play here. It, my, I mean, my first instinct is to say, well, maybe not because it seems like not effortful. Mm. In fact, it's sort of automatic, right? Mm. And yet, I don't know. On the other hand, I want to say, Doesn't, well, the, the kind of condensation that is in poetry is maybe like the kind of psychoanalytic version of condensation. But now you say more about this. I mean, doesn't Freud describe it as the dream work at one yeah. point? Um, yeah. so I have two, I actually That's hadn't good. thought of this at all and I really love this, but, um, you know, I know that she was very interested in surrealism earlier and I really haven't thought about Nietzsche and Freud, so I can't speak to, I can only speculate, but, um, you know, the two things, and this is just riffing off what you were saying that I thought about is that condensation, condensation, the condensory that happens in your dream is a form of distortion, right? Mm-hmm. Form of one of the dream distortions that change your mother from just your mother to also your Right. school teacher <laughs> whatever <laughs> to keep with that let's like it, choose a different of, example <laughs> yeah it changes like your elephant to a, your yeah, yeah, an yeah. elephant to your pet cat or yeah whatever. okay uh-huh. that there's something um so part of the condensory that she's talking about here like both thickens and also clarifies but actually there's something i don't know i'm, I'm curious about a, a condensory yeah, I, that I, distorts i do know that there, that there's some I don't know the German. Well, is it possible that it's the, 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 that the German that gets translated in the standard edition of Freud as condensation is l- related to the Dichtung? Um, mm, I don't because know. Because I, I, I know that to... some people, I, I, I have this now vague memory. Gosh, this is, the, this is your, your listeners, you're now hearing the kind of 
I don't know, maybe the appeal for you or, the, or, or I think the flaw of this form in which we're just sort of thinking on our feet and with a little bit of research, we would have had something more considered to say. But I, I feel as though I've heard people talk about, oh, a better translation for condensation that that ship has sailed would be thickening, that that mm, better mm. gets at what Freud is describing. And mm. I wonder if that's because it preserves somehow this kind of Germanic kind of root or, or yeah. other things, yeah. And also the, like, gluing together of multiple things. But, but right, that... the, the sort of condensation of milk, the way, one way that's different from psychoanalytic condensation, as yes. I understand it anyway, is that you what it's doing is... something rather than to, adding to multiple to, things right, together. Right, right. And, and, and that the effect of that is that you're doing it to sort of reduce something to its essence, mm. to mm-hmm, its sort mm-hmm. of, right? You're sort of removing yeah. impurity. Right. Yeah. Whereas an excess things that are not yeah. required, right. you know, you create the more pure, thicker version of the thing. Right. But then I would say the the second thing I'm saying is that the kind of condensation in a psychoanalytic sense, what that requires is then therapy. Like it requires interpretation right. in in the way that like to me, you know, Freud is much more interested at the interpretation than the dream itself. So there's this sort of like bringing things together or they to then be able to bring them right apart. Right. And obviously we spent like over an hour talking about this poem, but I'm curious whether the same kind of implication of interpretation is present in how she talks about that word, how she uses it. Right. So so in in other words, if, if, um, if poetry's condensation is like psychoanalytic condensation that 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 an an implication of that might mean might be that that the what the what the reader of a poem does is like what the psychoanalyst does yeah or what the, and that's, what the person you know, who's thinking about their own dream does which is a to long sort conversation of right unpack that's, it to right yeah that's maybe that's like uh, part two of our conversation. And is, is that um, what is that what someone does with condensed milk too? I mean, is is um, like do, does one add water back to? I mean, is it is is that done for commerce so that it can be shipped here, or there, or preserved, or something, or or is it a valuable ingredient in its own right? Which you, it's a valuable yeah. ingredient. Condensed milk is a valuable ingredient in, in its own right, and it's present in a lot of desserts and a lot of right. things. Yeah, and also as a kind of um, you can have very small quantities of it because it's right. so so. Yeah sweet so it can be quite a good like you can add it to things that are less sweet and it's quite an economical sweetener because you only need a tiny bit you said you wanted to to spend some time on the final stanza and it's probably time we did that so no layoff from this condensory and i I mean i guess one could read that that those line those words emphasizing slightly different words or with different intonations and could suggest different meanings but what you said you had all kinds of questions about it or thoughts about it I mean, and i want I'm to hear about those delighted to talk this one through with you no layoff from this condensory or from this condensory so right. there's a question no of it right. is yeah. from this one but not the other one you know i i suppose my question to hear here is on the surface it seems to me like she is marking a distinction between poetic work and other kinds of labor that whereas one is you know you work a job but at any point you might be laid off Nidika was intimately familiar with what that means um whereas if you're a poet it's like Adam's curse in the kind of Yeats way you know you're condemned to toil forever um that there's no end to being a poet right but I don't I also want to know whether there's a sort of um could we make an argument for equivalence that the condition of working 
is you know, if you get laid off while you're getting another job, there's an endlessness there. Oh, um, right. What what do you think she? What does she land on here about the status of poetry, the work of poetry, the the being of the poet in this final stanza? Yeah, sorry, you're asking me that. <laughs> I am. Yeah, yeah. I've I've decided to to use this occasion to to ask you your thoughts. Um, okay. All right. I don't know that this is part of the part of the agreement, but that's fine. yeah. I was going to say, I'm never being invited back on this podcast. <laughs> no, you, yeah. Uh, let's see. I mean, I guess so the first way I take the, I take those lines is I, I think in the spirit that you were suggesting a moment ago as a kind of. I mean, I don't want to. I'm not. I don't want to put too much on the, this word, but as a kind of joke, like no layoff from this condensory. You know, you know, you work at the milk condensery in town, you might well be laid off and you gave us, you know, the biographical background that would suggest that that would be a, um, you know, a kind of event that Nidaker would have herself known and, you know, um, um, been subject to. Um, right. You know, if I don't have an employer, I can't be, I can't be let go. Um, from you know, I, I I guess let's see. I guess the I guess I'm interested in the word um, in in the work being done by the word this in the penultimate mm. line of the poem. Um, so you know, if the second stanza of the poem says, "I learned to sit at desk and condense," you know that already is suggesting okay, right? And the title, of course, which we said we'd come back to, is 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 sort of preconditioning us to understand that what's you know, what's being described here is this other kind of labor, presumably not the kind of labor that the grandfather was in his sage. I mean, unless the grandfather is pound, right? It, it, and, and, I, and I'd want to say, well, that's actually a good example of poetic condensation, right? That grandfather might be both her paternal or maternal grandfather, whatever, mm. and also as her pound. Right, as a as totally. a different kind of grandfather, and there's it's a kind a scary of scary thought, but yeah, the, totally. And there's a kind of irony in that, right? Because they'd be giving very different kinds of advice, or that advice would would mean something different. And I love what you said earlier about how, in in essence, she's sort of trading that advice in for another version of it. You know, mm. trading the sort of practical advice from the actual grandfather for the for the poetical advice from the from the um, um, from Pound. Mm. Um, but but then when we get to no layoff from this condensory, is 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 that is that this condensory referring to the activity of po- like of poetic labor, or to this particular poem? You know, th- that is the, the poet is 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 I is identifying the text we're reading as the condensary that is being. What does that then mean for the no layoff? If there's no layoff right. from this condensory, right. this particular poem, what do you think that would mean? Well, I don't know. Would it mean that she's... Um, it's easier to... You're right, because it's easier to know what it would mean if it if it were just to mean like the work of poetry, mm. then you could say, well, so long as what you mean by by being a poet or, you know writing poetry or doing that labor is that like, if you don't mean anything about publication or success or anything like that, but there, you know, you can't be kept from doing it. Right. Totally. And there's also something I think in no layoff. That's like, there's no laying off. Like I can't stop this. There's a kind of compulsive. 
I this see. is a condition, not an activity. And if well, it is an activity, it is one that I can't lay off. Part, part, but but to come to the sort of second part of you know that question you asked me a moment ago. Well, mm. what would it mean if we were to take this condensory as referring not to the work of poetry in general, but to this poem in particular? You know, I guess w- one answer that I'm sort of toying with here is that it returns us to that conversation we were having earlier about um, the status of the personal in the poem. So this poem, let me say what I mean. This, this, this poem does have an I in it. And, in, mm. and, and one thing you might say is that, well, once that I has gotten into the poem, that I is stuck in there, right? Like <laughs> it can't be, it's, it's in there now. And there's no sort of separation possible of that I of that I from the poem as it's been written to that point. Mm. I don't like having said all of that, Kristen, what, what, I mean, what I would say is the, what seems to me like the primary way of making sense of that final stanza is, uh, uh, um, is, is the, the first reading that you began with, Mm. right? Like, unlike the kind of labor that the, 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 the condensory that is the one that purifies milk, the condensory that is the work of poetry is something from which one cannot be relieved, as it were. You know? And I think there are two, so like the two things I would say to that is I agree. I think that the, the emphasis here does seem to me to be on difference, but it's always a partial difference because in order to describe her poetic work, right. she, you know, the final word returns us to that industry. Yeah. She's always bound to these terms, these local, these industrial terms. The second thing I think this is more interesting is it's actually a question of tone in this final line, the final stanza, no layoff from this condensory. Like, do we read that as a sort of resignation? It's kind of, again, like, the poet is resigned to endless toil. Uh, that such is the curse Gotta of being clock, a poet. Got to clock in again. You yeah, know, yeah, just like this forever and ever, of like yeah. pushing the poem up the hill right. or whatever. Yeah. Um, or is it freedom? You know, to 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 live without the threat of layoff is surely a good thing. To not be laid off, to not have the possibility yeah. that you might lose your job is, I mean, that's. Is she celebrating? Is she, you know, how do we read this attitude? Well, it would be a thing. It would be a thing to celebrate if, if, and only if one had accepted as a kind of immutable fact that one lives in a kind of capitalistic, you know, society in which having a job is a necessary mm. thing in order to provide for oneself. Right. So it's, it's, in other words, it's it's a kind of good outcome in a diminished world. <laughs> right, totally. Right? It's not a utopian vision. And I think there's a question here. Not, again, being, of like not the, ever being laid off. Right, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Not ever yeah. being laid off is like way worse than never having to work your shitty job. Right. You know, right. like it's right. much better to, so it's, it's yeah, it's, it's worse than just being able to, you know, fill your days with meaningful work that, you know, leads to self-actualization and the beautification of our, our commons like yeah. it's good but right. it's not the best right and, and if that's an attitude she has not only towards the job cleaning in the hospital kitchen but mm. but also that's somehow the attitude she has towards the work of poetry that's interesting right that's, I, yeah, yeah i think that there's a question here of what of again what i come up against here is restraint 
There's no layoff from this condensory. And yet the way that she is thinking about this is within the bounds of a world in which there could be layoff. There are layoffs from other things, certainly right. from the job she's working. And the terms in which she describes this are material, materially bound. Right. They're these industries. Um, right. Yeah. It's also, I mean, it, it, it occurred to me in, in, um, in this last part of our conversation um, that though I think for good reason we began talking about this poem by just jumping into the the kind of multiple meanings of the word condensary, including the um, the milk one. Um, th- that word doesn't appear until the final word of the poem, right? So so that on a first reading of the poem, you get to the verb condense, and unless you're someone who is already predisposed to be thinking about the dairy industry or something, you know, you're not likely to make that. I just want to clarify that I am not predisposed to thinking about the dairy industry. Of course Um, not, but but, but right. You know, so, you know, and you'd asked earlier, well, it's interesting to think about who, who did need a Kerr imagine a reader to Mm. be, which, uh, you know, is probably not the kind of question we can answer decisively, but it might be interesting to think about at this moment too. Um, I, the, I guess the point I was trying to make was a relatively simple one, which is just that the the pun doesn't happen until the very end. Um, and, you know, in other words, you could imagine a version of the poem in which the, the word condensary happened in stanza two and the word mm-hmm. condense happened in stanza three, in which the pun was introduced earlier on and then, you know... Um, you know, yeah. the, but but it's not that way. Which which, with with the effect of that for me is to kind of make m- more like the the last word of the poem, the thing that can't be disposed of, the mm. kind of um, the um, the the pun or or what you know the um, the sense in the which hinge. Yeah. yeah the sense in which the poetic labor is like this industrial kind of Mm. labor as well. Yeah, I think that's really true. Um, And I would be curious to, to, you know, what would happen if you did change it so the condensory was in the second stanza. Um, I think there's also something here where the the pun, the, the loaded term, also her theory of work, arrives at the very end and we kind of left, we're left there, you know, it leaves off without further, further theorizing right. or elaborating. Yeah. And to me, that draws us into the sort of the no layoff, the endlessness that she has described in that final stanza. It feels like there is something unfinished or that she has refused to finish here because it lands so heavily on that final word. No layoff from this condensory. Do you know what I mean? That it's yeah. kind of... Um, it's drawing us into her and to the poem's endlessness as it stops pretty abruptly. You know, it's a short poem. Yeah. It's bringing us to her desk in a way. Yeah. And sort of keeping us there. Yeah, absolutely. And so the title, Poet's Work. Right. What do you reckon? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, well, you know, we can think of, poet's work as um we can think of the word work as as being both like labor but also um production right um you know you think of a um um 
I don't know, Lorene um, Niedeker published a work of poetry, you know, in that mm. sense, right? Mm. A work. Um, object rather right, than right, activity. Right. The object that is the, that is the, um, that is the outcome of the labor. Yeah. I think it both has the, the object and the, um, and the labor the itself. Verb. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and I don't know, I mean, I don't want to try to like tie to, to tidy a bow on it, but that that is itself a kind of condensation, right. Of, of, um, of the object and the, and the thing, um, uh, of the, of the object and the, and the labor itself. And I, and, and now my mind is going back to, um, sort of other, other moments in this podcast history when the yeah. idea of labor and, um, and its relation to poetry have come up in the, in the, in connection to Yeats, for instance, you yeah, know, sure. and among school children, um, excellent uh, poem. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, so you, you know, listeners might be thinking about, about that as well, but right. There does seem to be something very, um, I don't know. I, I come back now to the, um, to the question of tone, which you'd raised earlier, there seems to be something kind of um, pugnacious about that, about the, yeah. the the ending of the poem, like, um, and that maybe has to do with who she thinks she's addressing. Um, yeah, I can't. Um, so I think sticking with the title for a second, it, this sometimes I feel that poets title things in a way that are like screaming out to, to, for analysis or to put them on syllabus or for them to headline a, a book, right. which this is for me. And poet's work is so, you know, oftentimes she didn't title her poems. Right. They tended to have much more specific titles. They were about sort of people and places right. and things. Um, so poet's work is so uh, declarative and so broad even as then we we get into this kind of familial poetic history and this very specific word condensory, so specific, you know. Um, right, it's like a thematic or conceptual title. It's like an yeah, like, yeah, um, yeah, a thematic or conceptual title. Yes, I mean rather I than saying true. you know like poem for Paul or something, you know, right? Yeah, and why you isn't know. it called like condensory or like right. at desk or something, right. you know, right. or writing? I don't know. There'd be something, writing is clear, it's closer to poet's work, but it's, um, it, it does feel like she's sort of setting, you know, the title announces a kind of theory of what poetic labor is going to be. Right. And the poem as it goes through to me is pretty deflationary. You're right. sitting at your desk and you're doing very little. And then there's no layoff from this condensory. We get that pretty unlovely, heavy word yes, at the end right. with very little elaboration. So that to me, again, there's this sort of um, this feeling of things that are stated plainly. There's very little elaboration on them, yeah. which is both a kind of restraint. She's restraining her lines and also leads us into the boundlessness of the poet's condition, which the final stanza yeah but so, but so interesting that the um that the movement is is like as you said deflationary but also moving towards boundlessness which yeah. sound like op opposed kinds of things just as i imagine those words spatially or something yeah they shouldn't be they shouldn't sit together i think that that's really contained in the no layoff there's a kind of resignation i yeah. read there yeah um yeah. And deflation might look like condensation too. I mean, they're both, right? 
bringing things down, taking a larger volume and making it a smaller one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or kind of reduction. Yeah. Um, but, 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 right. The, the claim being made there is that the work is perpetual. Yes. That the work is ongoing and perpetual. And, you know, as you know, we've, we've done clocked what nearly an hour and a half of this (laughs) nine line poem. Yeah. Kamra and I started, we were talking, we're like, oh, it's pretty short. Maybe we'll talk for like 45 minutes. Yeah, maybe we'll do, maybe this will be a short close readings episode. Yeah, I know. And I was, I was bigging up my, uh, you know, desire to keep it short and sweet, but no. So I think that actually does Well, we're not poets, we're critics, right? We are, exactly. That speaks to me as well. Something about the, the like particular interpretive labor of condensed poems. They require so much teasing and pulling and- They are like rich and sweet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I hope what we what we haven't been doing is just like adding water back to the concentrated milk, which we've received. It, yeah, but maybe I mean, we they're have the then. lovely image for criticism generally. Yeah. Water to milk, the next right. <laughs> entry in the critical. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's not end. Let's not end with um, diluted milk. Let's no. end with condensed milk. Um, Kristen, could I ask you to read the poem again? Of course. Thank okay. You. Poet's work. Grandfather advised me, learn a trade. I learned to sit at desk and condense. No layoff from this condensory. Uh, Kristen Grogan, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been a totally enlivening um, hour uh, plus talking about Nidaker with you. I've learned so much and I'll bet our listeners have too. It's been a total pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy. Good. Um, well, um, come back anytime. And, <laughs> and Next time, Freud. Next well, that's time, a different podcast. Time, yeah, maybe not no, Freud. Frost, yeah. Birches. Let's Birches. Do yeah, let's talk yeah. about Birches. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, well, when that happens, I'll let, I'll let the listeners know. And in the meantime, um, be well, everyone. <laughs>